It has been a very long week. Whatever side of the aisle you are on, literally or at a metaphoric level, what a nail-biter of a week. And it is great to see you and all of you with us online. We love you and we miss all of you. My goal for today is just to do my very best. Um, I'm sure it will fall short, but my very best to offer a pastoral word on the election and more than the election on how we navigate the coming months as followers of Jesus in a time of political polarization. Translation, I'm about to talk about Jesus in politics on the internet, right? And uh, so to begin, how about we pray (laughs) and take a deep breath or two or three, the spirit of God, the word for spirit in Hebrew and Greek is ruach or pneuma. It is the word for breath. Just breathe in the spirit of God. Breathe out all that is not. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, here in your presence of love and joy and peace that is all around us, as close as the air, not just up against our skin, but in the center of our being, we welcome your presence. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you for this beautiful fall day. (laughs) Come what may tomorrow, it's a beautiful day for a walk. Thank you. Just a few short weeks of bright fall color. What a gift to be alive in a reality where there is a creator and creation, and we, the Imago Dei, are the object of your love and your affection and your compassion. What a better story than the story of America, than the story of secularism, than the story of random chance and mutation. Thank you for the story. We know the story we live in is the story we live out. So God, come and again, terraform our mind and imagination to align with the story of the king and the kingdom and to live that out on the streets of Portland and far beyond. Come, give us your spirit now as we explore you, Jesus, and all that you have to say. Amen. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to John 18. That makes you jump. You've been seeing a lot of first-time gun owners in here? Yeah, quite a few. You know, a lot of new first-time shooters, first-time gun owners coming in buying guns. Did you ever think that you'd find yourself in line buying a gun? No. This would be the last thing I thought I would do. 48 years old, never crossed my mind until the election came up. And uh, I just started getting nervous, just like everybody else did. I mean, every time you drive by here, there's 12 people in line. It's got to tell you something. Will you just describe what <laughs> Hello. Can you just describe what it looks like? Okay, so we are just in a uh, open grassy field. We have a table um, at the firing line, and we're just going to be setting up for four shooters at a time. Just take a deep breath. That's all. Just take a deep breath. Can I ask you why do you why do you think there is so many new gun owners? Um, 
people are scared. It feels like a life and death situation, really. I think if Biden wins, the you know the Proud Boys are going to come out. If Trump wins, I think that's where we're going to have a massive problem. It's really all up in the air. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. We just don't know who's going to be president and what's going to happen afterwards, you know. But you're arming yourself just in case. Yeah. That clip was from the Daily Podcast by the New York Times just a few days ago in an episode about the rapid uptick in gun sales over the past six months. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but gun and ammunition sales are literally at an all-time high in 2020. In fact, um, background checks for handguns alone are up 80%. And fascinating to break down the stereotype, it is on both the right and the left. Take a look at this from a recent Politico article. Our research shows an upswing in the past few months in the number of Americans, both Democrats and Republicans, who said they think violence would be justified if their side loses the upcoming presidential election. This growing acceptance of the possibility of violence is a bipartisan movement. The Brookings Institute, in their article, Why the Risk of Election Violence is So High, said this very recently. The broader pool of potential extremists has grown during COVID, with Americans at home and online consuming vast quantities of propaganda and disinformation. So even if a relatively small percentage of people might actually mobilize to violence, the milieu from which they will emerge has metastasized significantly. The November election is increasingly perceived as a winner-take-all contest with no room for those who do not identify with a specific side. And it's not just extremists who are seriously considering violence. One survey found that among Americans, quote, who identify as Democrat or Republican, one in three now believe that violence could be justified to advance their party's particular goals. A substantial increase over the last three years. One in three. And if history teaches us anything, it's that people, even those who at least claim to follow Jesus, when they perceive a threat to their body or their soul or their society, will often resort to violence or follow a violent leader rather than follow Jesus and his way of self-sacrificial, nonviolent enemy love. That's not new. What's new in America is the extreme level of polarization between the right and the left old and young, urban and rural, coasts and the middle country. Our nation, as, as has been said, is more divided right now than it's been since the Civil War. A recent survey from political scientists that I read a few days ago found that 60% of voters think members of the other party can, can constitute a threat to America. More than 40% would call them evil, and 20% think they are animals. Another academic study found that, quote, hostility to the opposition party and its candidates has now reached a level where loathing motivates voters more than loyalty. And while the bifurcation between the left and the right goes, it's not new, it goes all the way back to the French Revolution, if you know your history, where the left side of the House of Parliament was for the overthrow of the monarchy and those that were against it stood on the right-hand side of the House of Parliament. Polarization has been on the rise, most sociologists argue, since kind of the 90s and the transition from Clinton to Bush. But then with the transition from President Obama to President 
Trump over the last few years, it's accelerated. And then with COVID-19, it's accelerated to a whole new level. This is due in part to COVID, but also in part to what the sociologist Bill Bishop called The Big Sort in his book by the same name, the grouping of Americans into what he called communities of like-mindedness, or what the sociologist Robert Bella of Harvard called lifestyle enclaves, and the, quote, narcissism of similarities. Portland is a case study par excellence in this. If you've been here for a while, it's easy to forget this city is a homogenous political echo chamber which means it's just easy to feel right at a dogmatic and close-minded and intolerant level and even morally superior in your political views when pretty much all of the people around you either have the exact same political sensibilities or just shamed into silence. One of the best tweets I saw this week was from Michael Ware, who's a Christian. I've met him before. He seems like a really good guy. He served in the White House as a White House staffer under President Obama on his faith initiative. After Tuesday's razor edge numbers, he said, here's what I'm sure of after yesterday. We cannot continue to operate as if half the country does not exist. It's easy to forget that today is a day of celebration for many, in particular in our city. And it's also a day of grief and loss for many others. Many people in our own city are feeling just a deep sigh of relief. Other people right now are feeling a visceral fear. All that to say, our nation is very divided to the point that some, an increasing number, are ready and willing to take up arms. And listen, the vast majority of this, in my strong opinion, is based in fear. I know I say this a lot, but the older I get, the more I read the scripture, the more I follow Jesus, the more I think that everything at some level is about fear and the transition from fear to love as the spiritual journey. A ton of people, a recent survey, 80% of Americans said the country is out of control. According to Braver Angels, a nonpartisan group, 70% of Americans think that if the wrong candidate wins, America will not recover. 70% think that. A ton of people I know from our own church booked an Airbnb out in Eastern Oregon for election week because they were too scared to stay home. People are scared to death. So here's the question before us in coming weeks and months and years. How do we as followers of Jesus in Portland, Oregon of all places, a city on the front page of the news for months and a nation that is torn apart by partisan politics, how do we stay at peace in a time of chronic anxiety? How do we stay together in a time of division and hate between different groups of people? And above all, how do we stay faithful to Jesus in a nation that on both sides has turned politics into a rival religion and Washington DC into a new Zion? And not only how do we stay together and stay at peace and stay faithful to the way of Jesus, but how do we even go beyond that and function as peacemakers, follow Jesus' call to function as peacemakers in our city? We've done work on this recently. Not peacekeepers, whose job is to maintain the status quo, but peacemakers, whose job is to take two separate enemies, to bring them to the same table, and to bring them to a place of repentance and reconciliation in love. That is not an easy job. 
How do, we, how do we function as peacemakers in the coming months? Well, take a look in John 18 and what Jesus has to say when he is arrested by the Jewish leaders on a political, tri- on p- political charge of sedition, and he's put on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. It's a go-to text to explore Jesus on politics. Take a look at verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, to the palace of the Roman governor, Pilate. Rome, of course, Israel's under Roman occupation, right? So here's the de facto governor. By now it was early morning, so Jesus has been up all night in an illegal interrogation. And to avoid, this is fascinating, to avoid ceremonial uncleanness because they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So notice how religious the people are who are trying to murder Jesus. So Pilate came to them and he asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Like, why is he here? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. He's a threat, Jesus is. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But, they say, we have no right to execute anyone they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. In the first century, of course, Israel was under Roman occupation, and the Jews had a measure of judicial leeway, but capital punishment was reserved for the empire, meaning prison is not enough for the Jewish leaders. They are out for blood. They want Jesus dead and gone. 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace. He summoned Jesus... And he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, just to clarify, this is a loaded question. We don't experience it that way because, you know, we live in a democracy, not a monarchy. We don't have kings or queens anymore. And we kind of get that Jesus is the king. But in context, king of the Jews was an official political title. And there already was a king of the Jews. His name was Pilate. This would be like President Trump or President-elect Biden asking someone who is sweeping the country right now with his teaching about how there's a country of God. Everybody's like, what, do you, what does he mean, the country of God? Is this America? Is this, what exactly is he saying? Calling him in or the F, he's in FBI you know, interrogation or whatever and saying, are, are you, are you claiming, are you saying that you are the president of the United States? That's the question here put to Jesus. Jesus, brilliant and coy as ever, 34, is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? What a, what a linguistic ninja Jesus is. Am I a Jew, 35? Most scholars think that's kind of a racist dig. Romans look down their nose at Jews. Am I a Jew? I don't know. Who knows about you? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Now, take a close, pay close attention to 36. Jesus said, my kingdom, or again, an American, my country, is not of this world. Or another way to translate that Greek preposition is my kingdom or my country is not from this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. I would raise an army and rally gun and ammunition and violence and go to war with Rome. But now my kingdom is from a whole other place. Ha, 37, you are a king then, said Pilate. Notice that Pilate does not have like a political category for Jesus. Notice how confused this educated, sophisticated man is. 
Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. You said it. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to overthrow the Roman Empire in the name of justice. Nope. Is to testify to the truth. I'm a philosopher king. I fight not with violence, but with truth of reality. And everyone on the side of truth, all of those who want to align their mind and body and life with reality and human flourishing, all of them listens to me, or that can be translated obeys me. In Greek, the word listen and the word obey are the exact same word. To listen to God, to listen to Jesus, to sit as a disciple of Jesus at his feet and listen is to hear him, really hear him in the depth of our being, and then to obey, to surrender and yield all of our life over to a whole new king. 38, what is truth, retorted Pilate? Two millennia before Foucault and the French postmodernists, here's Pilate, what is truth? For him, everything is just like the French postmodernists, like much of our city. Everything is just about power. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there, and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Fascinating. Do you want me to release to you, quote, the king of the Jews? He said kind of in a sarcastic tone. Listen to this. They shouted back, no, not him. They reject Jesus as their king. They reject Jesus' kingdom in favor of the one at hand. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas, little aside here, had taken part in an uprising, or another way to translate the Greek here is Barabbas was a revolutionary. Now, there's something lost in translation from Greek to English, and that is that Barabbas' name is more literally Bar-Jesus, or Son of Jesus. This is a true story, but it's also a brilliant literary device from the writer John, who's doing a compare and contrast between two Jesuses, two political revolutionaries, one whose way is truth and self-sacrificial, nonviolent enemy love, and the other who is a revolutionary there with blood to bring in his own human vision of the kingdom. And people reject Jesus in the name of Bar Jesus. People reject the way of love in the way of violence. This is a story as old as time. Now, let's just hone in for a little bit on Jesus' central claim there in verse 36. My kingdom, or again an American, my country, is not of this world or not from this world. If it were, my servants would fight. We would resort to violence. If that's what it was, we would go the way of the revolutionary. But now my kingdom is from another place. That is a good text to put to memory and to sit in every single time you read the news for at least the next three months, if not much longer. There's a lot that we can extrapolate from verse 36 about Jesus and politics. Of course, he's living in a monarchy under Roman occupation, not in a democracy under whatever president, but still, there's a lot here to kind of dig up and make sense of. But first, a little bit of background, just give me a few minutes. Jesus' first century world was just as polarized as ours, if not more so. Israel has been, had been colonized by Rome and was suffering under a high tax load and very little freedom. There were multiple groups within first century Israel, kind of sects, but the two most common that we read about in the Gospels are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were more rural or small town, more conservative, and on one hand, devoted to God and to Scripture, 
On the other, they, if you know anything about them from reading Jesus' teachings and reading the Gospels, they had lost the heart posture of God, in particular God's heart of compassion and justice and love for those on the margins. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the closest thing to progressives in Jesus' world, and it doesn't fit, that label doesn't fit, but it's the closest thing. They were far more urban, more upper class, more educated and sophisticated. They did not accept, this is fascinating, they did not accept most of the Bible as scripture, in particular, nothing after the Torah, which means they did not believe in a whole range of kind of, at the time, Jewish doctrine. They did not believe in resurrection. They did not believe in life after death or angels or demons or any of that, and they were the minority, but they were the ones in power. They were the ones down in Jerusalem in charge of the temple and in particular of the cultural institutions of Israel. And they became powerful and rich due to compromise and complicity with Rome. And while the Pharisees and the Sadducees do not map right onto our political landscape of right and left, there are enough similarities to point one or two out. And what's fascinating is one, Jesus does not fit into either category. He just does not. Two, the Pharisees and Sadducees hate each other. I mean, literally hate each other. But in the story, they come together to murder Jesus because they hate Jesus even more than they hate each other. As the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And while we are not living under Roman rule in first century Palestine, thank God, so we have to make an educated guess as to how Jesus would interact with a democracy like America. And, th and that calls for humility, by the way. This is not like strict math, one plus one equals two. It calls for imagination and opinion and interpretation, it calls for humility. But as followers of Jesus, like Jesus, we do not fit into a political tribe. We may register as one party or another in order to vote, but we just do not fit into a category. Think about all that we are for, just what we're for, not even to start with what we're against, what we're for as followers of Jesus based on his teachings and the library that is the New Testament. We are for, first off, the whole world. God so loved, not just America, God so loved the world. We're for the whole country, not just a coastal city like Portland or wherever it is that we call home. We are for all economic groupings, not just the one that we are in, but we are especially for the poor. There's no way around that as followers of Jesus. We are for all ethnic groups, not just the majority one or the, that, the one that we identify with. We are for the immigrant and the refugee, whatever our policy opinion is, we are for that. We are for women, need that even be said, and the gift that you bring to the church and the world. We are for equal opportunity for all. We are for religious freedom for all. The way of Jesus is not coercive. Religious freedom, not just for Christians. We are for, that is a Christian idea. We are for anti-discrimination laws and dignity and human respect. And at the same time, we are for the sanctity of human sexuality and gender and marriage. We believe that sex is, we have just a way higher view of sex than most people in our country. Country. We believe that sex is way more than just a biological release or a way to propagate the species.
movies or play for grown-ups. We believe it is the fusion of two souls. It is beautiful, and it is good, and it is powerful. And when it's used in intimacy and loyalty to form families where children grow up safe and happy and flourishing, and mom and dad are formed and forged into people not of narcissism but of agape, when it's used that way, it is a powerful voice and force for good. When it is used for nothing more than narcissistic pleasure and biological release and self-gratification, it is a powerful force of destruction and dehumanization. We are for the unborn as we are living through the great genocide of our time and most people are silent. We're also for the environment based on our founding story in Genesis where the earth is God's creation, not ours. There is a creator, there is a creation, and we, the Imago Dei who live in between, are charged with its care. And in the Genesis story, we are held responsible as we have real legitimate agency for its future. We're also for nonviolence and enemy love and all of the implications of that. And we are still, in a weird way, for authority. We honor those in authority over us, even when we do not like them or they fall far short of Jesus' vision. We still live from a place of honor. The list goes on and on. Now, followers of Jesus across the political aisle disagree on the best way forward on a number of these issues. For example, let's take um, one like the poor, which is a very clear biblical theology that as followers of Jesus, we are for the poor. Democratic and socialist, socialist Christians think the best way to care for the poor is through government programming and wealth redistribution through higher taxes. Republican and libertarian Christians, of course this is all oversimplification, but you get the point, think the best way to do this is through government deregulation and lower taxes to, spend, to kind of create space for agency and entrepreneurship. And Anabaptists and apolitical Christians think the best way isn't through the government at all, but through the church as an alternative society where Justice is done first to each other in a relational web of love as we care for one another and those with extra give to those who have less of our own free will. Now, most centrists think it's kind of a combination of all three. Why do you have to pick one? And most who are more extreme think their way is the way. And of course, you're right. Of course, you're all right. But you know. Now, my point here is that followers of Jesus disagree on the how. Like, what's the best way to care for the poor? But we do not disagree on the what. If you disagree that you as a follower of Jesus have a personal responsibility, not just to pay your taxes, not just to vote, but to actually care for the poor, then you're not a Christian. Or, or a more gracious way to say that is you've yet to discover what Jesus actually has to say about your life and your money and your future, right? We disagree on the how, but not on the what. My point is here. Even if we agree, even if because if we have, this is our theory or this is our working whatever, with one particular party on A, B, and C, if we are faithful to Jesus, we will inevitably disagree on D, E, and F. Politically, we are homeless. We don't fit into a camp. We're not tribal. Why? Because it's very simple, exactly what Jesus said right before you. We belong to another king and another kingdom. This is so simple. But we belong to a kingdom with no borders, a kingdom not based on nationality or ethnicity or political theory, a kingdom based on trust in Jesus and his inbreaking rule of God. And our, again, this is so basic, but our primary citizenship is to that kingdom and our secondary citizenship is to America or wherever we call home. 
by citizenship, let me define that. I don't want to keep that at a sentimental level. By citizenship, I mean our identity and our sense of belonging and peace, our allegiance and our responsibility, and where we place our hope for the future. Our citizenship, it is our identity, it's our sense of self, it's what makes us, us. Our sense of belonging, it's who are our people, who, is it, who, who are we a part of. Our sense of peace, where do I feel ah, okay? Our sense of allegiance, who are we loyal to, of responsibility, who do we actually take action for? And of course, our hope, what do we put our hope in for a brighter tomorrow? Before we are Americans, or you fill in the blank, or Democrats, or Republicans, or white, or BIPOC, or whatever, we are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. Now, let me just say the obvious. That does not mean that our other identities don't matter. They do very much. It just means they are below our identity as a son or a daughter of the Father, as a citizen of his kingdom. This doesn't erase our ethnicity or our culture. It enriches it because we're no longer captive to it. We can both enjoy what is good about our ethnicity and our culture and our nation, and from a a place of healthy differentiation, we can in love disagree and even critique and stand as a prophetic witness against it. And all through church history, whenever the church became chaplain to a particular politician or political party or God forbid an ethnic group, it's been a disaster. Constantine, Augustine and just war theory, the Crusades, Henry VIII, Rwanda, I mean, just fill in your example. Political activism has a long-running tradition in the church, but it is always nonpartisan, and it is always slanted toward the vulnerable. As Esau Macaulay, the author of Reading While Black, said the day after the election, my prayer is that whoever wins should discover that the church is their biggest ally when they do right and their most relentless critic when they do evil especially as it relates to the most vulnerable. What he's tapping into is Jesus' idea here that our call in this kind of kingdom or country of the United States is to, quote, testify to the truth. Take a look again. It's right in front of you at verse 36. For this reason I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Our follower, we're followers of Jesus Our job is first off to listen to the truth, to hear it and to obey it, to let it from our mind into our body and our budget and our life and our relationships and our all that we are, and then to stand with Jesus and testify to the truth, even if it means that like Jesus, we are crucified. Most literally not in body, but maybe in name or in reputation or in income or in career. The word testify here is martus in Greek, which can also be translated to be martyred for the truth. Same word. It's translated witness or testify or martyr, all the same word in Greek. To testify is to speak the truth, even if we are killed for it. Increasingly, I think our job and responsibility as followers of Jesus in the coming years will to be at some level crucified in public and not to retaliating kind, to take whatever the world throws at us, whatever insult, slander, gossip, lies, false accusation, and just to in love absorb that as Jesus did when he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing, to be the place where the hate of the world stops in our body and is transformed into love. 
And we can only do that if and when our heart is grounded in our citizenship in the kingdom. And that is where our sense of identity comes from, our sense of belonging, our sense of I'm okay and I'm safe, and our sense of hope for the future. I've said this for weeks, but let me just beat my drum. Politics matters. Who the president of the or one of the most powerful countries of the world is matters, but no nation is the kingdom of God. And no political party will ever usher in the kingdom of God, or said just another way in more American language, will ever solve all of the world's problems and make everyone happy and healthy. Leslie Newbegin, a seminal thinker on the West ship to post-Christianity back in the 70s, predicted, or maybe better said prophesied, that as the West secularizes, religion would not go away Politics would become the new religion, a new secular kind of search for meaning and purpose and for hope and for belonging and for utopia, for the kingdom of God, for a chance at the good life, but without God. And it comes as no surprise that humanity's attempt to achieve a flourishing life without God is failing. And it will continue to fail. It is a project doomed for failure. Hence, all of the anxiety and fear and disillusionment and rage and people ready to kill in the name of their vision, and our city in particular, and people who are so frustrated, not just with the opposing party, but with democracy itself or the government or capitalism or you fill in the blank. And while I do things, I'm cautiously optimistic. I sound more gloom and doom than I am right now. But I do think things will calm way down under President-elect Biden. But it will not solve the problem of polarization. It will not solve all of the problems of growing inequality in our nation. It will not, there's no silver bullet. It will not solve the problem of sin that is still in our body and in the systems of our society. Mitigate against it? Yes, I hope and pray so. Solve it? No. And while we play a key role in the healing of our nation, in particular as we head into the holidays and we see family and we're around people that are maybe outside of the echo chamber of our city, we work for, in the language of the prophet Jeremiah, peace and prosperity for all, but from a place of hopeful realism, not utopian idealism. Because idealism and utopianism are a form of violence. They destroy the reality of what is in an attempt to create perfection without God. And it's always violent. It always destroys and it always dehumanizes. Our hope, and this is so simple, this is like, this sounds radical in Portland. This is like basic historical. Historic, orthodox, this is like the easiest sermon you ever had to write, right? Our hope is in Jesus and in his kingdom and his return to make all things new. And if you want a little hope, read the end of Revelation. I read it multiple times this week and it just... Yes, there is coming a day where there is no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sign, no more hunger, no more disease. The glory and the honor of the nations, the best of every nation, the best of every ethnicity, the best of every culture is there on celebration. And that day is not in late January. That day, well, maybe it is if that's when Jesus comes back, but you know. That day is at Jesus' return. Now, before we wrap up, just in our last few minutes together, based on that very simple idea, we belong to another king and another kingdom. Let me, and, that, and that gives us freedom to be even better citizens here and now. Let me just give you three very basic principles from the teachings of Jesus for how to navigate the coming weeks and months. Just a very basic stuff. Number one, never forget that we are not in control. We're just, again... You're like, this is grade school level, yes. 
but we're not in control of what happens or doesn't happen, of whether the transition of power is peaceful or a mess, of whether our nation is on the edge of anarchy in the coming years or our best days are yet to come, of whether America will continue to secularize in both the left and the right. And that's been one of the, the most insightful things of the last few years is to see, oh wow, this is what post-Christianity and secularization look like, not just on the left, but now on the right as well. Even if people use religious language, and notice often on the left and the right how people use Christian language, they're using the same vocabulary but a very different dictionary. And they might claim to be Christian, it is a different religion, it is a different gospel, even if they use the same terms. This is what it looks like on both the left and the right. We don't know if that will continue, if America will continue to secularize, or if we're right around the corner from like the third great awakening. And we're about to like relive the Jesus movement and all start communes in Eastern Oregon. And like, who knows what's coming? I have no, I'm ready for it. I'm especially ready for Eastern Oregon after the last year, but whatever, who knows? One of the reasons people are out buying guns right now is because they feel so out of control. And it's just, it's just an attempt to feel in control. It's not actually, but maybe if I have a gun under my bed, maybe then I'm safe. Maybe then Antifa or Proud Boys or whoever can't break down my door. I mean, there's an interview in that New York Times podcast of this guy in Seattle, millennial, educated, lifetime, lifetime Democrat, upper class, works in tech, who just bought his first AR-15. And they ask him why, and he says, I just wanted to feel a little more in control. And then they say, what were you scared of? And he said, honestly, I'm scared of somebody break, of Antifa breaking down my front door and coming in to harm my wife. Like this man is, is in bed living in that kind of fear. And we're just grasping for a kind of control because we feel so vulnerable and fragile and weak and mortal. And guess what? We are. And herein lies yet another invitation from the Spirit of Jesus to surrender the illusion of control, and that's what it is, and to put our trust in Jesus above all. To remember that whatever happens to our body, we are living in the kingdom of God, and no one and nothing can take that away from us. To come back to the reality that we're not God. We're not all-powerful we can't fix the problems of our city and nation. Play our part, yes. Fix, no. We're not all knowing. Who knows what God is doing right now across our nation and our world and even in our own city. It is written, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29. It is also written, we read this before Sabbath, it is God who judges, he brings one down and he exalts another, Psalm 75. And who knows what God is doing in our soul or even in our church in this horrific time where we can't even be together. Now, I'm not saying, again, disclaimer here, that God is in control or that everything happens for a reason or there's some divine plan behind all of the evil of the last year. There are a lot of Christians who believe that. I don't. I think it's, it's, I think it's very misguided. There's a lot of mystery as to what is behind the curtain of the universe. But here's what I am confident of that God is at work through all of the tumult of the last few months and years to bring about good in me, in you, in our church, in our city, in our nation, and across the world. I can't help but think of that lyric we've been singing lately. Even when I can't see it, you're what? Working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. Don't worry, I'm not going to be a play a Christian and break into song. I can't do that. It's beautiful when you do it, brother. It's just embarrassing if I were to even try. 
right? But you never stop working. Our job is just to consent to the work of God in our soul. Our job is very simple, pray and love. That's really it. And love, love and word and indeed, like love with your body, love with your vote, love with justice, all of that. But that's our job, to pray and to love, to pray your kingdom come, your will be done, and to let go of the illusion of control. Second, we must banish any and all contempt from our heart. Man, keep this before you as we move into the holidays. In the Sermon on the Mount, in its first of its series of teachings, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. New Testament scholars point out that, you know, one, there is, a, there is, this is the first in a series of teachings that make up the Sermon on the Mount, and two, that there is a flow of thought to that series of teachings. It's not random, like there's a flow of kind of logical thought in the Sermon on the Mount, meaning anger in Jesus' mind seems to be, if this interpretation is right, the cause, the root cause of so much of what's wrong in the world. And so much of the relational and social and emotional and even spiritual breakdown of brother against brother back as old as Cain and Abel. Now, anger here has to be defined The kind because Jesus did get angry, right? The kind of anger Jesus has in mind here is not necessarily the anger of the Old Testament prophet or Jesus in the temple, though don't just go on Instagram and say, I'm like Jesus in the temple. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But the anger here is the anger of contempt, Notice the language. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, that was an Aramaic word meaning stupid, or it's basically the equivalent of our word idiot. When we call somebody an idiot or an a-hole, we are making a judgment not about their behavior, but about their person. Not about what they did, but about who they are and about what worth or value they do or do not have. That is contempt, my friends. That is not anger about justice. That's not about them. That's about you. Contempt is when you take one, this is what contempt is, and I struggle with this, so this is why I have such a great definition coming for you. You know where I got this? My own heart, the depravity of my own heart. This is not a quote, this is a quote from the evil of my own flesh, right? Contempt is when you take one part of a person, their political view, or what they did, or what they said, and you make it the whole of them. You let that one part define who they are, and then with that, you demonize and demean them. You lower them in your moral and intellectual estimation, and in doing so, hey, you elevate yourself, and so that you can enjoy that sweet, delicious feeling of moral superiority. You think of yourself as morally or culturally or intellectually or even ethically better than them and you look down your nose at them as a whole person, you raka. Or an American, you racist. Or you Marxist. Or you idiot. Or you Trumpian. Or you liberal. Or you fill in the blank. This is the root. What if this is the root of our trouble? We must banish contempt from our heart. It has no, it's all, it's the air we breathe. Contempt and cynicism is the milieu of our city and it is 110% the milieu of internet life. We must 
Ben, it has no place in the heart of a child of God, no place in the heart of a follower of Jesus. And if and when we see it, and I see it in my heart all the time, we must banish it. We must repent. We must confess. We must turn from that. We must root it out. Any pride, any hubris, any judgment, any condemnation, any intolerance or closed-mindedness, whether we come from the left or the right, both, in my opinion, are equally intolerant and closed-minded. Any name-calling, any sarcasm, any snide comments, any cynicism, any bitterness, any acrimony, any hate, all of it is anti-love, and we are of all things for love. On that note, third and last, remember that the highest form of maturity is enemy love. First teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is on anger, the kind of anger that is contempt. The last teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and that flow is, quote, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, and that's in the Bible, hate your enemy. That, by the way, is not in the Bible. Interesting how we add to the Bible what we want it to say. But I tell you, this is not a new problem, by the way. It's not like a millennial thing. This is a human. It is a millennial thing, but it's a human thing. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors, that was the worst of the worst to Jesus' audience, are they not even doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what a great phrase, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? People who have no kind of the life of God in them? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfect there is not a great translation. It's telos in Greek, where we get the idea of a telos or the end goal. A better translation here is be mature, as your heavenly Father is mature. You have, meaning become who you were meant to become as an apprentice of Jesus. Grow and mature into a person of love. Now, this teaching is last in the flow of thought. A lot of scholars argue, again, because this, and this is what spiritual teachers from the way of Jesus have said for two millennia now, for Jesus, in the kingdom, the litmus test of how mature or immature you are how far down the spiritual path you are or aren't is how well you love your enemy. It is really easy to love your friends, at least for a while if you don't know them too well. <laughs> it's easy to love people who look like you, dress like you, think like you, vote like you, talk like you, tweet like you. It's very hard to love people you not only disagree with or debate, but you don't get, and even that you view as an enemy or as evil and a threat. And this is especially hard to do in a world where we all have the internet in our front right pocket. My friend John Tyson writes this in his excellent book, Beautiful Resistance, which is worth your time. Given the role of the media today, the polarization of our politics, and the presence of a 24-hour income-producing news cycle, we are told who is deplorable and who is worthy of respect. We are told who our enemies are and why they present a savage threat to us. Things are not presented to us in a fair, nuanced, or civil way. Hate is being cultivated one social media post at a time. And notice this is true of both sides. Each 15-second soundbite or meme is training us to release our hate on our enemies. If you want to know how mature you are, or said another way, how loving you actually are. Don't look at how you treat your friend group when you go out for dinner. Look at how you treat your enemies. 
Look at your social media feed, or better yet, just don't have one. <laughs> Look at how you talk to people you disagree with over the holidays. Look at what you mutter under your breath when you read certain things in the news. Look at your own heart, not in self-condemnation, but in humility. One of the great sorrows to end, one of the great sorrows of my heart as a pastor over the last year, in all honesty, has been to see how many followers of Jesus on both the right and the left, and even in our own church, have in my view, in humility, been taken captive by ideology. Best definition I know of ideology is when you take a part of the truth and you make it the whole. All ideologies, from communism to capitalism, from critical theory to free market economics, are all based, for the most part, in truth. But they willfully ignore the mystery and ambiguity of cause and effect and just life and the human soul. And they steal our heart away from its allegiance to Jesus the King and our hope in his kingdom. This is why ideology is a form of idolatry. It's a belief system that people look to to usher in the kingdom of God without the king, which is why an increasing number of people are more loyal to their party or ideology than to Jesus and to scripture. And if that is at all true of you, even a little bit, I plead with you in love as your brother, don't let the enemy deceive you. I think of Paul's lines, we are not unaware of the enemy's schemes. Don't be unaware. Don't let the enemy pull the wool over your eyes. Ideology will not set you free. It will enslave you in fear and anger and hate and division. And it will separate you not only from other people that you are called to love, but from God himself and his love. Stay, Bridgetown Church, all of you, stay faithful to Jesus and his way. Pray and work for the peace and prosperity of our city and our nation. Play the part that you have, but live for the kingdom, whatever comes. This is our first time living through social unrest as a generation, and it's scary. I mean, I'm cautious. I probably sound more dire today than I actually am. I'm cautiously optimistic, maybe even hopeful. That might be too strong of a word for me, but for that, I think things will get better in 21. I think a vaccine is coming. I think we'll go back to some version of normal in the not-too-distant future. I think Washington, D.C. will calm way down. I think we will recognize some things as a nation and come to a closer view of reality, I think, but I don't know. And that's not where my hope is based. I was falling asleep on election night, and we have this window kind of right over our bed, and I was really just kind of anxious. It's just, I'm guessing like all of you, based on whatever political view you had. And right before I fell asleep, um, Florida went to Trump, and I just went to bed like just full of anxiety and uncertainty. And as I was trying to fall asleep, right above this window, the, it was a full moon that night. It was gorgeous. And it was just literally right in the center of my window. I started to think about that hunk of rock that God created however many billions of years ago. It has been there watching us. It was there for the rise and the fall of Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh and Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and Henry VIII and Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Mugabe and it's still here. And we, like the church, or sorry, we the church, are like that moon, kings come and kingdoms go. And we feel the pain of that. That's not to diminish that reality. But we're still here. 
And we will still be here, and we will still be okay. A lot has changed in our nation over the last few years, and in particular over 2020, and in particular over the last week. But here's what's not changed at all in my lifetime. Jesus is king. His kingdom is here, and it's coming. And that is our hope. We are the people of the kingdom. Our future is bright, no matter what happens in the interim. Evil is real. Injustice is grievous, but good and justice and love will overcome in the end. We will keep practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland, come what may. We will keep loving our friends and by God's mercy, and I pray with his grace, keep loving our enemies. We are here in this city to pray and to work and to vote and to do all whatever your stuff is to contribute to love, but above all, to love how? By we testify to the truth. And whatever comes, Jesus is with us, even to the end of the end.